That evening, Megan's parents began to worry when she didn't arrive home as she said she would. As late evening became the early hours of the morning, her mum sent her a number of anxious texts, one asking, are you alive? Eventually, they woke up Megan's brother, John, to see if he had heard from her. He hadn't. They were now making frantic phone calls to Megan's iPhone every few minutes. This is Red Rum, stories about the true victims of crime. Episode 57, Megan Newborough. Megan Newborough stood at 5 foot 7 inches tall and had long blonde hair and blue eyes. She was living with her mum Elaine, dad Anthony and brother John in the family home in Nuneaton, Warwickshire, in the English Midlands. She also had an older sister who had already left home. At age 23, Megan was a hard worker and gained a job in human resources at Ibstock Brick, a long-established brick-making company that gave Megan the potential for great career progression. Megan's colleagues liked her a lot. They saw her as a, quote, happy soul a genuinely beautiful young lady inside and out. Megan's family meant a huge amount to her. She was a granddaughter, niece, cousin, daughter and sister and her family thought of her as the most generous, kind, loving, caring person, full of joy and happiness, someone who was always bouncing around and asking people how they were. Whilst working at Ibstock in June 2021, Megan had been carrying out a data protection audit with a colleague in the lab, when she met Ross McCullum. Ross was 30 years old and had joined Ibstock as a labourer around 18 months before. He quickly moved on to work in the lab at Ibstock, where he was in charge of testing different manufacturer samples. Ross's supervisor noted Ross as a hard worker and a quote, lovely lad for 99% of the time. Ross had been diagnosed with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder two years previously and was prescribed medication that helped him live a normal life. If he ever forgot to take his meds, Ross's behaviour changed and he became immature and, quote, teenage-like. He would be more boisterous and would swear at people and start using inappropriate language. When Megan and Ross met at work, there was an immediate mutual attraction. After the audit was completed, Megan continued to visit the lab and a relationship developed between the pair, who began to exchange text and WhatsApp messages, and they were seen acting almost like a couple, flirting, hugging and kissing. The initial relationship developed further over the next few months, as they continued to send messages to each other. In one, Ross told Megan about his quirks, quote, I cannot give them away just yet, Missy. You would run for the hills if you heard them all at once. When you get to know me more, you will see, haha. I have my moments when I can be a nice and caring guy too. Then Ross's texts became more explicit and darker in tone. But the relationship did continue to develop, and Megan tried to help Ross to deal with his, quote, low esteem that had caused erectile dysfunction in a relationship with a woman around eight years before. Ross was worried about being able to perform sexually. Megan tried to encourage him to be more confident by indulging him with empathy, kindness and endless patience. They shared one, possibly two, sexual encounters without intercourse taking place. Then, one evening, Ross went into a bar in his hometown and got chatting to a woman he had never met before. They shared phone numbers and started to exchange messages. Within 24 hours of meeting the stranger, 
Ross was texting her, quote, I'll tell you one thing I like doing is tying them up to the bed or bench, choking and slapping them. They all look scared at first but enjoy it a lot once it's happening. I kind of like it when they're a bit scared. Megan didn't know about any of these messages or Ross's sexual tendencies. It's also unlikely that she knew about an event that had happened six months before. This event was that Ross had confided in a male colleague at work. When he was a child, he had been sexually abused. Ross said that he was goaded into sexual behaviour by several older children on numerous occasions and spoke about being raped when he was 13 years old. Ross said that one of the rapists was Stephen Biedman, later sentenced to life in prison after admitting murdering 15-year-old Kaylee Haywood. At 34, he was serving a life term in Wakefield Prison. His neighbour, Luke Harlow, had groomed Kaylee online and made contact with the 15-year-old, exchanging over 2,600 text messages with her over a period of 13 days. Kaylee then spent the night at Luke Harlow's flat in Ibstock Village on November 13, 2015. The next day, Stephen Biedman, then 28, was also invited round, and the pair forced Kaylee to drink alcohol. After being sexually assaulted by Luke Harlow, Kaylee tried to flee the house, but Stephen Biedman chased her down before raping her and then killing her with a brick, dumping her body in a farmer's field. Kaylee's body, which had to be identified using dental records, was found five days later on the outskirts of the village. Whilst he was in prison, Stephen Biedman suffered a heart attack and was taken to hospital but died later that same day. When Ross heard this news, he said he felt sad. On Friday the 6th of August, just a couple of months after Megan met Ross, they were talking on WhatsApp. Ross's parents were out of the house that evening so they had arranged to meet there. Before she left, Megan told her parents that she was going to go for a walk with a friend and that she wouldn't be back home too late. Her brother John said Megan was completely normal and in happy spirits when she left the house at about 7.30pm. She drove from the family home to Ross's and arrived at just after 10 past 8. Ross was in the garage when Megan arrived and heard the car draw up outside. He said, quote, I'd been drifting off into the realm of remembering stuff in the garage. I was really looking forward to her coming round. Ross let Megan in and they went into the living room, sat down and started to talk about marriage and moving in together. That evening, Megan's parents began to worry when she didn't arrive home as she said she would. As late evening became the early hours of the next morning, her mum sent her a number of anxious texts, one asking, are you alive? Eventually they woke up Megan's brother John to see if he'd heard from her. He hadn't. They were now making frantic phone calls to Megan's iPhone every few minutes. The next morning came by slowly, but as soon as it was light out, John drove to Ibstock with one of his sister's friends to see if they could find Megan. By midday, Megan's dad reported her as missing. Warwickshire police interrogated their automatic number plate recognition technology that revealed her car was last seen off Nan Panton Road in Loughborough the previous night, and so John headed straight there. Quote, I thought it could be parked somewhere and drove up and down the road, canvassing the area but could see no sign of her car. After returning home, John tried to contact Apple to see if they could locate Megan's phone, but he was told that no one could help until Monday. But John was resourceful and tech-savvy. 
and using Megan's login details to access the Find My Phone app on iCloud, he found the phone was emitting a signal in Countryside near Hermitage Road. John, his father, and some of Megan's friends drove to the area in convoy and a search began that lasted into the evening. As the day wore on, police became deeply involved in the investigation and recovered Megan's phone deep inside a large overgrown hedge surrounded by brambles at the side of the field. Police technical staff unlocked Megan's phone and it was then that they found some texts between Megan and Ross that showed he was the friend Megan had gone to meet that evening. They got Ross's address from a colleague of Megan's at Ibstock Brick. The police arrived at Ross's house to find that he was out, but his dad called him and then went off to collect him from a Sainsbury's store in Loughborough. Meanwhile, a police constable made a short search of Ross's rubbish-strewn bedroom, taking a photo of his erectile dysfunction medication. But the house was not sealed off as a potential crime scene to make sure that Ross was not deterred from returning home. Whilst Ross's dad was on his way to collect him, the PC called Ross to find out any information that might help with the search. For all they knew, Megan could be in trouble and may need some help. The sooner she was found, the more likely she would be okay. The PC made the call from the family garage whilst she was searching it. Hello, um, we've just come to your mum and dad's house. Um, we're just looking for Megan, she's been reported missing. Have you seen her at all? She came on Friday. I've been talk, I've been trying to call her loads. Um, she came on. She came on Friday for about an hour. Yeah. Then she she, she left about nine-ish. Okay. I went to went to McDonald's. Yeah. And then she said she could not call or a text when she got home. She never she never did. She never did. Okay. Um. So you haven't seen her since yesterday. About was it half nine? You said. Nine o'clock. Nine o'clock. Okay. And where are you at the moment? I'm in Loughborough right now. You're in Loughborough. Okay. What are you up to yeah. in Loughborough? Sorry? What are you up to in Loughborough? I'm just on a, having a few drinks in Loughborough. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. No worries. Um, are, you in a, are you in a relationship, you and Megan? Yeah, well, yeah, we've been seeing each other. She's HR at work. I work with her. Yeah. Um, We've been seeing each other yeah. for about a month and uh, supposed to go out the house this weekend. Yeah. Mum and dad are out. Kind of mum and dad are out the house. I'm supposed to go around, but she never turned up today. I'm supposed to be here at like 12 o'clock. Right. And did she say anything of where she might be going or where she might be? She said, she said, she said, she said all she said was she's going to go to. She's going to go to McDonald's on my own to get like a vanilla milkshake. Yeah. That's it. When Ross arrived home with his dad, he was immediately questioned by the police. Um, at this moment in time, we have reason to suspect your involvement in the disappearance of Megan Newbury. Uh, and as a result, I'm arresting you on suspicion of kidnap. So you do not have to say anything. In a high defence, you don't mention one question, something which you may later rely on in court. Anything you do say may be given in evidence. Ross, in relation to Megan, can you tell us where she is? Second. Talk down the police station. Can you tell us? Can you tell us here? Just quite. Charlie Road. Charlie Road. 
whereabouts? In the library. Okay. Is she alive? No. Okay. Right, do you want to come with us? After Ross was arrested on suspicion of murder, police then travelled to the location Ross had identified. A PC dog handler said, quote, I was told Megan was dead and might be in a lay-by behind a wall in a country lane outside Colville called Charlie Road. I made my way to the location on blue lights to search the area. By the time I arrived, we had been joined by officers from Leicestershire Police and a police helicopter with a searchlight. About 100 yards from our car, we saw a small piece of grass that looked like it had been trampled on between the road and a four-foot stone wall. I looked over and saw thick vegetation on the other side. There was some bracken and brambles that had been disturbed, and when I shined my torch into it, I saw what looked like some black trousers. It was 1.24am when Megan's body was found. It was so well hidden that the PC said it was unlikely she would have been found until the change of seasons. Ross then admitted to what had actually happened that night. When Megan left her family home, she had gone to Ross's house as planned. He let Megan in and they went into the living room. They sat down and they started to talk about marriage and moving in together. Things became more passionate and Ross described what happened to the police. Megan tried touching him intimately. He told her to stop, but he claims she refused and slapped him. Ross said, quote, I did back off and she held me closer and said, come here. She was facing me and I went forward. I should have said at that point that I needed to be on my own because I felt trapped. I should have said it, but I didn't. I wasn't angry with her though, that's the thing. She's never done anything to make me want to hurt her. It was that feeling of being touched and trapped. I remember just screaming, no, no. As soon as I pushed forward, there was no going back. It wasn't a thought process. I couldn't stop. It was blind rage. That was when I just exploded. It was just rage. I pushed forward with all my strength. I've never, ever felt like that before. It was like a volcano. He got his hands round Megan's neck, and despite her struggle, Ross didn't stop attacking her. Later, when Megan's body was examined, bruising was found to her jaw, suggesting that she probably did put up quite a fight. Eventually, Megan stopped struggling and lay expressionless and still on the living room floor of Ross's parents' house. Ross hadn't finished with Megan. Even though she lay there lifeless, Ross became what he describes as delusional and went into the kitchen and returned with a kitchen knife. He then cut Megan's neck 14 times to make sure that she was dead, adding, quote, Once I'd done it, I realised I had made things a million times worse. When he had finished, Ross stood there looking at the devastation he'd created. There was blood everywhere over the room and all over him and the body of Megan. His parents would be home at some point and he had Megan's lifeless body lying on the living room floor. Ross grabbed Megan's car keys, wrapped her body in some sheets and pulled her outside. Then he manhandled her into her own vehicle. Ross didn't have a driving licence but he got into the driver's seat anyway and started to drive the car. He was heading for an isolated rural spot that he knew and as he drove he threw Megan's iPhone out of the window of the car and into a hedge. The time was 9.04pm, just about 30 minutes or so after he had strangled Megan. 
But he had just made one of his crucial mistakes. He had not switched off the iPhone, so thankfully, it could be traced. He drove on before finally stopping the car at Charlie Road. This road in the countryside had a four foot high stone wall on one side with a tall, dense mass of bracken tangled with overgrown brambles on the other side. Ross pulled Megan's body out of the car and hid it in the undergrowth on the other side of the wall. It was likely it wouldn't be discovered for some time as this was the type of road you drove down rather than walked along and her body was impossible to see under the bracken and brambles from any car passing by. The inside of the car was covered in Megan's blood. There was blood matching Megan's on the passenger side of the car and on the outside of the vehicle. Nearby, there was also a glove which contained DNA belonging to both Megan and Ross. Now, he had to get rid of the car, so he drove to the car park of Loughborough College Fitness Centre. This was another mistake. As he drove into the car park, CCTV focused on him and recorded every move that he made. The time was now 9.51pm. From then until 9.59pm, according to the cameras, he was recorded methodically depositing various items of his and Megan's into a nearby pair of bins. Her boots, her glasses, the blood-stained sheets he'd wrapped her body in. He also changed his clothes, placing the clothes he had been wearing into the bin, along with the towel and linen he used to clean up the blood. Then, Ross got a taxi home. When he got home, he cleaned the house as well as he could. Then, Ross sent more texts and messages, even leaving a voicemail saying he loved her from the room in which he had just killed her. Hello, babe, it's Ross. Um, I'm walking forward about you. I haven't rang back or, you know, text me or anything. Um, yeah, I'm just worried, that's all. I had a fun time earlier. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Okay. Meanwhile, Megan's brother John was driving around frantically looking for her. At about the same time, Ross, seemingly unconcerned with what he had done less than 24 hours before, was in a taxi on his way from his home to Loughborough to go drinking with his friends. The route his taxi took happened to retrace his steps from the evening before and passed within 100 yards of John, his father and the rest of the search party as they were looking for Megan. When news of Megan's death became public, there was an outpouring of grief and tributes on Leicestershire Live, the local news website and paper. Someone who knew Megan said, quote, Thoughts to the family, such a shock and tragedy. Megan was such a beautiful person inside and out and always made time for people. Another person added, quote, This is devastating. Megan was such a beautiful soul, so kind to everyone and full of joy and happiness. My thoughts are with her family. The police continued to investigate the case and the coroner carried out a post-mortem, after which Megan could be buried. Ross McCullum was formally charged with the murder and his trial began at Leicester Crown Court on Monday the 31st of October, with a 12-person jury sworn in and several members of Megan's family watching. Wearing a black t-shirt, Ross McCullum appeared via video link from HMP Leicester and pleaded not guilty to murder, but guilty to manslaughter. The Crown's prosecutor refused to accept the plea. In his words, The Crown's case is that the defendant embarked immediately upon a series of deliberate actions carefully calculated and carefully executed to cover up Meghan's murder and his role in it. 
Sometime between 8.15 and 8.50pm, McCullum killed Megan and the violent manner of Megan's death leaves no room for doubt that the defendant intended to do so. After the undisputed facts had been explained to the jury, it was for the prosecution to build the case for murder and for the defence to show the reasons it should be considered manslaughter. The prosecution claimed Ross was cunning and calculated in covering up the murder. They showed that in the room just upstairs from where Ross had killed Megan, Ross started to surf the internet. The record of this provided what the prosecutor said was a 2020 insight, not just as to what the defendant was browsing online, but equally into his very mindset. Ross's first internet search was how to tell a girl you love her. The court then heard a voicemail message received by Megan's phone at 11.27pm after Ross had killed her, in which he did just that, left a voicemail for Megan saying that he loved her. Between then and about 1am on the Saturday morning, he browsed various YouTube channels and websites, search items included what is club soda for cleaning. He did this whilst continuing to send numerous text messages to Megan's phone feigning concern and establishing a cover-up before returning to YouTube. This time, he searched his interest in the notorious murderer, serial killer and rapist, Levi Belfield, who murdered teenager Millie Dowler, also Peter Sutcliffe, an English serial killer who was dubbed the Yorkshire Ripper and was convicted of murdering 13 women and attempting to murder seven others, Ian Huntley and the Soham murders, Dr. Death Harold Shipman, the Manchester Arena, scene of the Ariana Grande atrocity, and Who Cuts Your Hair in Prison and How Do You Pay? Then he searched the news, then the weather, important in estimating when Megan's body would be found, and about Loughborough College. He also made further calls to Megan's phone, i.e. more of an alibi on this false trail he was hoping to lead. Then, as dawn was breaking, he began to look at pornography, with a clear emphasis on domination. Then, witnesses were called and questioned about the circumstances surrounding the death. A forensic pathologist concluded that pressure to the neck or strangulation was the cause of Megan's death. Ross's boss at Ibstock Brick described the conversation he had with Ross about abuse as a child. Then, Ross's mother, speaking from behind a screen so she didn't have to see her son, said... She didn't get any suggestion of anything when she saw her son on the night of the death. She had discovered a damp patch on the living room carpet after she'd returned that evening from a party with her husband. Quote, it was just wet. I asked him what had happened and he said he had spilled some coffee. There were also marks on the wall. Ross's mother went on to say that her son had revealed in the weeks prior to Megan's death that he had been sexually abused by older children when he was just eight years old. He told her that Stephen Biedman was also one of his abusers. A former girlfriend who shared a house with Ross in Kegworth about nine years before also gave evidence. She revealed how she had concerns about Ross's reliance on porn during their six-month relationship and that he had problems with erectile dysfunction years before his diagnosis with ADHD. Then Ross McCullum gave evidence. He told the court he felt he deserved to be in Leicester prison after his arrest. He said, quote, It was tough having to come to terms with what I'd done and why I was there. The first week was during COVID time, so he had to be isolated from people. I was all on my own, thinking, and I was thinking I deserved to be there. Everyone else was innocent, that's what they all say. 
He said other prisoners came to visit his cell and said that they had seen on the news what he'd been arrested for. He said there were some who accused him of raping Megan and felt naive for trying to explain to the other inmates what he had done. When asked about why he had accessed pornography in the hours after killing her, he said, quote, Yes, as a safety blanket, it makes you feel better for a short period of time. That's what you did at 7am for some 17 minutes after killing Megan, the prosecutor asked. Yes, I'm being completely honest. I know how bad it makes me look. It was escapism from what I've just done. The prosecutor then asked, did it make you feel better? Ross said, it relieved the stress of what I had done. And I did the worst you could do afterwards, which was leaving text messages. I hate myself for that, yes, and I felt like crap. When pressed on whether he considered his worst actions to be sending the texts rather than killing Megan, Ross said, quote, That's worse than, as we say, murdering Megan in cold blood. I know there was no control over that. I wasn't myself. And afterwards, especially next day, I started really examining what I'd done, what I needed to do. I just killed somebody, killed Megan, so I took a deep breath and thought, what do I do? And I did that, sent the messages. When asked if it was only the next morning he had the self-awareness to recognise what he had done was wrong, he replied no. The full extent was starting to sink in, which is why I watched pornography, to feel better. Then, the prosecutor moved on to challenge the claim Ross had made about his sexual abuse, accusing him of telling a pack of lies, and that instead, he had felt humiliated over his impotence. Ross had ordered Tadalafil pills used to treat erectile dysfunction after a brief sexual encounter with Megan previously. The pills were delivered and it was then that Ross invited Megan to his home, but it was his impotence that was the real reason he launched the attack, said the prosecutor. Quote, you attacked her in a blind rage because you'd been humiliated. You hated her for all the things she was and all the things you couldn't be. Ross replied, when we were out having a walk the weekend before at the wood, did I feel humiliation? Did I strangle her there? No, I'd never do something that awful just because I was humiliated. The prosecutor then asked, when you had your hands around her neck, did it turn you on as you strangled her to death? Ross replied, no, I didn't want to cut her head off. Referring to the many cuts around Megan's neck, the prosecutor asked, had you planned to use an old motorcycle helmet from the garage at home in order to transfer her head out of the house? Ross replied that the helmet was there because he wanted his dad to see it to see whether it was worth any money and had nothing to do with Megan. Quote, You showed remarkable coolness and precision of mind after killing Megan. The text messages, using her car to dump her body, the voicemail, quite the performance. You were ice cool, weren't you? You're a sadistic killer who acted with ruthless intent. It was now for the defence to show that Ross's actions were a temporary loss of control or abnormality of the mind which meant he wasn't able to form an intent to cause serious harm. Ross was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder when he strangled Megan as a result of sexual abuse he suffered as a child. Quote, His case is that he did not have any reason, wish or intention for Ms. Newborough to be killed or to be the victim of any unlawful violence but for the PTSD that consumed him at that moment and the attack was born of pure panic. A forensic psychiatrist told the jury that when Megan touched Ross's groin and said, come here, during a more intimate moment, Ross had an abnormality of mental functioning that caused a flashback that had taken him back to being abused as a youngster. He said, quote, he was having vivid memories, he was back there. 
The psychiatrist explained that Ross had a substantial reduction in his ability to control his actions just before he became enraged and strangled Megan to death. He recalled that his heart was pounding. He waited to get out and was feeling trapped. He recoiled and when she pulled him towards her, he pushed her back. The forensic psychiatrist told the court that he said that he fell and he started strangling her. He said that after 10 to 15 seconds, he got up and started panicking. I cover a lot of strangulations on Red Rum and Humans and I'm pretty sure you can't strangle someone within 10 to 15 seconds, just as a side note. Quote, he said that her face was blue and her tongue was sticking out. He told her how sorry he was. He said she had no pulse. It was clear that Ross regretted strangling Megan, describing her as the nicest person. With PTSD episodes, it's as though they are back in the moment of that traumatic event. People can describe a sense of almost being out of themselves, not fully conscious but certainly not unconscious. The risk of PTSD after rape is very high and Ross's symptoms were consistent with this. It did not surprise him that Ross had not previously had an incident triggered by the alleged historic abuse in the past. As for the stab wounds, the question was raised about whether they were consistent with the actions of someone suffering PTSD. The forensic psychiatrist found it, quote, very difficult to define when the PTSD episode stopped being relevant, but that what Ross did after the killing, taking her body to his car and then driving off to hide the body, could not be considered as part of the PTSD episode. Once all the evidence had been presented and the summing up was made, the jury retired to consider their verdict. It was the 13th of December 2022, and after just 91 minutes, they reached a conclusion. Guilty. People across Leicestershire had been so shocked and horrified by the killing that many called for Ross to be kept in prison until he died. Before sentencing, Megan's older sister Claire gave a victim impact statement in person, addressing part of it to Ross, who was sitting in the dock with his head bowed. She told him, quote, You are an unpredictable menace and a danger to women. You appear to crave some sort of notoriety. Megan always thought she could fix people, but fixing evil isn't possible. I hope that she haunts you forever. She described the trial as seven weeks of hell and Ross McCullum as the very definition of a monster. She added, Megan's loss is so profound, words can't describe the emptiness we feel. Megan was a sensitive soul and all she ever wanted was to be loved. Megan's father Anthony also spoke about the impact on the family of Megan's murder. He said the family had been ripped apart by an evil human being. He said that after her death, he was overcome with guilt for failing to protect his daughter. The court also heard that Megan's shoes were still by the front door at the family's home in Nuneaton and her clothes and makeup were still waiting to be put away in the bedroom. Anthony said, As a father, I always worried about Megan meeting up with men. I even offered to go with her that night. My wife didn't sleep that night, watching and waiting as the hours ticked by. She didn't want to be intrusive, but her intuitions were screaming out worry and concern. When the police came to their front door and told them Megan's body had been found, he said their hearts exploded into little pieces and are shattered beyond repair. Anthony also spoke about he and his wife going to identify Megan's body and how he collapsed and cried in a corridor for more than 15 minutes. He said, Nothing could prepare us for what we saw and the emotions we would feel. Megan's eyes looked puffy and swollen like she'd been crying. I simply went numb. 
I cried out loud, solidly, for about 15 minutes. All we could do was hold each other. No parents should have to bury their child. All we want to know is why, and we may never know, from the defendant. The defendant is clearly a damaged man, and in our opinion, should remain behind bars for the rest of his life. It's like a horror film, but it's a true story. Megan's story and our story. She was our princess, and the defendant, with his evil hands and evil mind, has taken her away from us forever. In mitigation, defence told the judge that while his client was a severely damaged man, he was not totally beyond repair and would be working on his issues in prison. He said his client would benefit from a target to work towards so he doesn't abandon all hope. Judge Philip Head sentenced Ross McCullum to life behind bars with a minimum of 23 years before he becomes eligible for parole. He told Ross, It was her dreadful misfortune to become involved in a relationship with you. DI Jenny Heggs added, McCullum has never been able to give a full explanation of why he killed Megan. This, without doubt, has caused further pain to her family and friends. She was only 23 with her whole life ahead of her, and I know those who knew her are still struggling to come to terms with what happened. I hope today's outcome provides them with a degree of closure. Later, it emerged that despite Ross's claims that he was affected mentally by PTSD, a prison guard heard him joking openly and bragging about using the knife, telling fellow inmates, quote, if I'd have gone a bit further, I'd have taken her head off. And in another incident, he was overheard on a prison landing by a guard, laughing as he told other inmates, quote, if you carry on like this, you'll end up like Megan. On the 26th of November, 50 of Megan's loved ones, including her mum, dad and sister, joined in the Bedworth Park Run in her honour and raised money for the White Ribbon Charity, which fights to end male violence against women. A childhood friend of Megan's, Amy Jones, said... Quote, she made a list of things she wanted to do and one of them was a marathon. None of us are really up for a marathon, but we thought that if we got enough people to do a 5k, we can make it up to a marathon. Whilst Ross McCullum spends the best part of his life behind bars, Megan will be remembered by her friends and family who celebrate her life through the good work they do for others. With many thanks to our guest writer for his help with this episode. If you do the socials, you can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at Red Rum True Crime. Also, we're on Facebook. We have a Facebook group. I think that is also just uh, Red Rum True Crime. <laughs>